0: Alright, well all that makes sense because today we're talking about hard things and that was very hard. So anyway, it is very good to be here with you today. Um, for those of you who I don't know, I am Julia Allen, I am Pastor Dennis's wife and I've been part of Garden City from the beginning. So I'm usually back in kids' church um, teaching the preschoolers, which is amazing and wonderful and always um, I get the best stories and I learned so much back there. But I am very excited to be in here today. Um, so let's get started. I wanted to start off today by asking this question. Have you ever come across something that you read in the Bible that just made you go, what? What? Maybe you've read a verse or a passage that just felt like it didn't line up with what you understand of who God is, or maybe you read something that poked something uncomfortable in you because it challenged something that you've accepted as right and true, or maybe if you're like me, you've even read something in the Bible and thought, whoa, I don't even wanna deal with what that might mean. And I sure hope nobody ever asks me about it because I have no good answer for that. And if you resonate with that last one, then you're in good company because up until a few weeks ago, that's exactly how I felt about the passage we're going to talk about today. So this text, it, it started off as a really hard place for me. And I think once I read it, you will probably understand why. But, As I've spent time reading and studying and praying through it over the last few weeks, it's been really humbling for me to realize that a part of scripture that I had looked at as kind of like that awkward thing you just skip over and move on by, actually held some real treasure for me and that I am hoping and believing will be really good for our community today. And it reminded me of this. There will always be things in the Bible we don't understand. There will always be works and ways of God that we don't understand. There will always be things that bother us or convict us or cause us to ask hard questions about our faith or about God and his work in the world and the people that we love. And there will also probably always be plenty of things that we can read and just immediately feel really good and justified about what we already think. But I would like to practice something together today as a community that I really believe all of us as followers of Jesus should be trying to practice. We're going to do the work of reading these words with humble, open hearts and curious minds. And we're going to engage the risk of digging deeper. Let's push past the initial discomfort or knee-jerk reactions. Let's ask the hard questions. Let's acknowledge the places that feel uncomfortable or confusing. And instead of just ignoring them or running away, let's lean in further. Let's try to trust that if God is who he says he is... That if he is really real, that he is more than able to hold up to our questions and our doubts and our confusions. That the mystery of his goodness and power and majesty and love might be more clearly and fully made known to us, not in spite of our questions, but because of them. Because he's a good father who wants his children to come close and ask their questions because that's how we know him better. So, I'm going to pray and then let's get to it. Father, we do know and believe that you are good. We know that you are holy, that you are sovereign, that you are far beyond our comprehension. And also, you number the hairs on our heads, (laughs) and you love us intimately, and you fashioned and formed us with intentionality and purpose and love and destiny. God, help us as we approach you with all of our stuff, all of our baggage, all of our confusion, all of our distorted perspectives. Help us to understand you a little bit better today that we might know and trust in all the goodness of who you are. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. So, our text today is Mark 7, 24 through 30. So if you want to take a minute to pull out your Bible or your device, or you can follow along on the side screens that are really, really easy to run if you want to volunteer for the production team. So, I'll just read this. Jesus left that place... And went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. I mean, yikes, right? (laughs) Tell me it doesn't sound like Jesus is just casually calling that woman a dog, right? So let's do what we said we were going to try to do. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's try to understand. Let's ask some questions and try to figure out what's actually happening here. To do that, I'm gonna start with a little background on this scene. The first thing we read is Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. So right from the beginning, there's context that makes a difference. That place Jesus has just left is the region of Capernaum. And in that place, he had just had this encounter with the Pharisees. It's the story that Dennis taught us about two weeks ago, where the Pharisees traveled 90 miles to basically... Chase down Jesus and his crew, and try to catch them messing up so they can discredit him. And they think they've done it. They try to call Jesus and his disciples out for not properly performing this elaborate hand hand washing ritual before they ate. They essentially call Jesus and his disciples dirty because they didn't follow the rules the Pharisees had made up. And then Jesus looks at them. And he confronts them, he firmly rebukes them, making it clear to them and to us that God was never interested in our religious performance, but that he cares about what's in our hearts. He calls them hypocrites who go through the motions of acting like they love God, but whose hearts are actually really far from him. Now, it seems that after that, Jesus is tired. And I think if we pause to remember that Jesus is both fully God and fully human like us, we can probably understand why. In verse 24, it literally says that Jesus goes not into the synagogue, not into a public square, but into someone's house, and he's hoping nobody finds him. Let's also look at the place that Jesus went to get away, this place called Tyre. Tyre is a very interesting place for Jesus to pick. It's a Gentile city, so predominantly not occupied by Jews. It's a busy, thriving economic center. And specifically, it's a place of great wealth and a place that's viewed by the Jews as unjustly wealthy. And that is because to build up all of their economic wealth, the people of Tyre had traded in ways that exploited their trading partners, including the Jews of Galilee. And then on top of that, Tyre is a place where paganism is widely and publicly practiced. And in fact, for Jews who lived in Jesus' day, it was the place that they would probably see the most extreme forms of paganism in the world as they know it practiced. And so ultimately, It wasn't a place that the Jewish people thought well of. It wasn't a place that they would want to be caught. The historian Josephus actually wrote that for the Jews, the people of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. I think it's interesting that a place that most Jewish people would not ever want to be seen is exactly the place that Jesus chooses to withdraw for rest and refuge. Pretty quickly, though, Jesus realizes he has not succeeded in anonymously hiding away even entire. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he is very well known throughout the Jewish world. Otherwise, the Pharisees would not have had any reason to be concerned about him. But not only is he known among the Jews, his name and his reputation have gotten out among the Gentiles. And we don't know exactly what the Gentiles living in Tyre would have known or thought about Jesus. But what we do know is he comes to town and the word gets out. And there's a woman who has a daughter suffering under the possession of an evil spirit who comes to find him in the hopes that maybe her daughter could be set free. Now, the text tells us that this woman is Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. And that might seem like an unimportant detail, but the way that Mark tells the story and then just pauses to insert that little piece of information tells us that it's probably something we should pay attention to. And it is actually really important because it tells us why she is exactly the last person who should think she could show up and ask something from Jesus, First, she's Greek. That means she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not a part of God's chosen people. And she was born in Syrian Phoenicia, which is another way of saying she's from Tyre. She's part of this people group that the Jews see as pagan, ignorant, godless, and evil. And to top all that off, she's a woman. She doesn't have the resume, she has no right to be there. And all of that matters if we're going to understand how this exchange plays out. Verse 25 and 26 tell us that she found Jesus, fell at his feet, and begged him to drive the demon out of her daughter. And this is Jesus' reply First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Go ahead. Feel that. And then dig in a little deeper and ask the question Why does Jesus speak to her like that? And what does Jesus mean? Now, like so many other passages in the Bible, this can be read. In a variety of ways. And scholars and people coming from different backgrounds and perspectives. Might land in slightly different places. On exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Now I know Pastor Dennis and Pastor Shaq. And other folks who have shared with us before have said this. And I'm going to add myself to this. We don't pretend that our understanding or interpretations of the Bible are infallible. We're reading What we believe is the holy word of God. We believe it's true. We believe it's for us. We don't pretend that our way of interpreting it is perfect every time. We are people just like every person who's come before us, every scholar, every student of the Bible who has read these words and tried to understand. And we are looking at them. We're doing our best to read the words and look at them in this larger arc of the scripture and the times and the places and the circumstances they're written into and allow the spirit of God to examine our hearts and our minds and guide us into understanding. And we will not get it perfect every time. But I do believe we can trust that when we approach our God with humility, he's faithful to lead and teach us. So that's what we're trying to do. With all that said, I believe that the most compelling and convincing way to understand this exchange that happens here is to recognize that Jesus is speaking to the woman in a parable. That he's not actually calling her a dog, but he's teaching a truth through a simple and brief illustration. And what's really cool to me is that he does it very cleverly in this tongue in cheek sort of way by hijacking a common term that the Jews would refer in a very, used to refer in a very negative and derogatory way to the Gentiles, the word dog. It was pretty common practice in the time of Jesus for people who were Jewish, even the rabbis, to take that word dog and use it to convey exactly what they thought of the Gentiles, dirty ignorant, ungodly, and surely less worthy of dignity than a Jew. But think of it like this. He's likely in a largely Gentile audience. Sure, he's got his disciples with him and maybe a handful of other Jewish people who'd come with him, but he's in a Gentile city. He's in the home of a Gentile person or family, and he's telling this story And I think of it like Jesus sitting down today with a group of progressive Christians and with a twinkle in his eye telling a story about those Marxist godless liberals or sitting down with a group of immigrants and talking about those illegals. It's like Jesus is looking and saying, what's the worst thing you've been called? What label has been applied to you to dehumanize you? Let me take those words. Let me empty them of their power to harm and let me use them to tell my story. He even goes so far as to take that word dog and use a different form of it than the word that was used by the rabbis. The rabbis used a form that referred to just like a common street dog. But Jesus uses this much softer, more tender word that was the word people used to refer to a beloved household pet a dog that would be intentionally cared for by its master. It's also worth noticing that first, Jesus says, first. In the parable, he describes how someone would appropriately choose to ensure that their children were fed before they took their food to give to the dogs. And what he's pointing to here is the established order of God's redemption plan. For all humanity, that salvation would come first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Remember, we have a God whose plan to save and restore began with one group of people, but is not limited to one group of people. This God who looked out across time and space and determined that the best way to bring about the rescue and restoration of all humanity was to begin in close relationship with one group of people, one chosen group of people, a people who were blessed to be a blessing, who were supposed to live in a way that showed the rest of the world the goodness and the glory and the love of God. And in this plan, salvation would come first to them, the Jews. Not only, but first. God made this promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he recommitted to that promise with Moses and the Israelites when he liberated them from slavery in Egypt. And honestly, what good to the Jews or the Gentiles is a God who doesn't keep his promises? He is, indeed, a promise-keeping God. But that promise wasn't a limit. It was just a beginning. Now, somehow, Jesus manages to fit all this meaning into these first few words that he speaks to the woman. And here, to me, is where the story gets really interesting. This woman listens to what Jesus is saying. She receives it humbly and honors Jesus by accepting his premise, and she understands what he's saying to her. And that is actually really significant, because up until now, every time Jesus has taught in a parable, we've been able to see hints or the text has outright said that the crowds were confused, that they didn't understand what he was saying. And he's had to pull his disciples aside and specifically teach them what he meant in the parable. And this is the first time recorded anywhere in the book of Mark that a person hears Jesus teach in a parable and immediately understands what he's saying. And it's this Gentile woman from Tyre. This short, simple parable of the children and the dogs at the table has revealed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She grasps it, and then she engages it. And the woman's response is bold, and it's beautiful. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you see what she's doing here? She's not arguing with Jesus about the established order. She's not asking him to break his promises. And she's not even trying to get him to take something that maybe was intended for someone else and give it to her or her daughter. But in this moment, this Gentile woman is seeing the kingdom of God more clearly than any of the Jews. She recognizes something in the character, in the way of Jesus. Or maybe she believes something about him based on his reputation, maybe even based on his presence in a place like this. And she understands that the economy of God is not one of scarcity, but of abundance. She is essentially saying, of course, Jesus, feed the Jews, but isn't there more than enough Isn't there more than enough food for all of us? Why wait for seconds when there is so much now, so much goodness, so much mercy, so much love, so much healing, so much liberation to be found in you that even right now the crumbs are falling to the ground under the table just waiting to be eaten, even now, even for me, even for my little girl. I wonder what Jesus was thinking in that moment. And we can't really know that exactly, but we know that he responds by telling her, yes, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. When Matthew tells the same story in his gospel, he makes specific mention of the fact that Jesus tells the woman, It's because of her great faith that she received what she asked for. Now, this story is just another example of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Remember, right before this encounter, we had Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, these people who had all the credentials. They're Jews. They're members of God's chosen people. They're educated in the law. They have this vast knowledge. And they have this really good performance of strictly following every letter of the law to demonstrate that they are pure and they are holy and clean and righteous and deserving of God's love and salvation. But Jesus exposed them for the hypocrites that they were. They'd gotten really good at making it look like they loved God but their hearts were far from him. And now we have this stark contrast, this person approaching Jesus who has none of the resume or credentials, but everything against her. She's a woman, she's a Gentile, she's from Tyre. As far as the Jews are concerned, she is unworthy, unholy, unclean, and surely unwanted by a Jewish teacher like Jesus. But despite all of those barriers, she brings herself into his presence, throws herself at his feet, bringing nothing but her need and contends with him and casts her and her daughter's fate upon the mercy and grace of Jesus, a grace she believes is enough, is big enough even for her. The last shall be first and the first shall be last, right? She is the one who receives from the Lord what she asks of him. So, I think that we've done some good processing together through a hard passage of scripture. We've practiced trying to engage it with humility and curiosity and asking questions and trying to search out the heart and character of God in these words, trusting that he's able to handle our doubts and our discomfort, trusting that his spirit is able to guide us into just a little more understanding of this mystery of the kingdom of God. But what does it actually mean for us? How can what we are learning shape us into more devoted, humble, healthy, whole followers, disciples of Jesus? First, it reminds us that Jesus comes for everyone— Nothing disqualifies us from being able to come into his presence. Nothing makes us unworthy of his love. And also, we can't earn it. No credentials, no knowledge, no resume, no performance can justify our place in his family. And that's true for us and for every human soul that we encounter in this messy thing called life. Even the ones that are hard for us to love. Even the ones that we believe are so wrong they are harmful. Even the ones who have hurt us. He comes for us, and He comes for them too. Second, we need to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is not one of scarcity, but of abundance. And then we need to actually live like that is true. And there's a question I think that we need to ask ourselves, and I'm honestly encouraging all of us to sit with this question this week. Because if I, I've been wrestling through it, I, it exposes things that I wish I didn't see in myself. And this is the question. Is there an area of my life where I'm not truly living like Jesus is enough? Do I take all the money that I earn or any resource that comes my way and save it all up for myself? Do I hoard and stockpile things just in case I might need them instead of living with generosity because deep down I'm afraid that I might not have enough for what I want or what I need? Or here's another layer to that. Do I do all of that and justify it really nicely by saying, well, it's not for me, it's for my kids? for my family do I strive after proving myself making a name for myself trying to build my own reputation or street cred or platform or influence because deep down I don't really trust that God makes me worthy as I am do I live out of a place of anxious self-protection gathering what I think I need to help me feel safe and secure whether that might mean possessing a weapon or making choices about where to live or where to send my kids to school based on these subjective qualifiers like safety or opportunity. And hear me out on this one. I am not saying that it's wrong to make wise, prayerful choices about where to live and where to send our kids to school. But what I am saying is do we stop to look around and make sure that everyone has that same opportunity? Or are we content to elevate our desire for security and control over God's call to courageously risk to invite his kingdom to be manifest right here in our neighborhood? Maybe it's something else for you. Maybe, like some of these examples, it's even a good thing. But if there's something that holds your trust or your comfort or your sense of security more than Jesus, it's worth examining. And third, I think we've got to acknowledge our weakness and admit our need to receive from the abundance of Jesus. As long as we think we've got things covered ourselves, as long as we live like we have to take and gather and grasp for control, as long as we operate from our own strength, our own intelligence, our own hustle, our own supply, we are missing out on being filled healed, liberated, and made whole by the abundance that Jesus has to offer. If the woman hadn't acknowledged her hunger, she never would have been fed from the table of Jesus. If she hadn't had admitted her desperate need, her daughter may never have been freed from her bondage. We have to admit our need to receive. Friends, in Jesus, there is more than enough for us. There's more than enough for all of us. Where do we need the healing and rescue of Jesus? And do we have the courage to admit our lack and throw ourselves before him, bringing nothing but our need and trusting that in his abundance is enough for us? That in the merciful overflow of his grace is exactly the measure required to meet our need let's pray god you are the god of abundance you supply our every need and yet so often we still exist with needs often needs that are really cleverly hidden away so that nobody can see we have them. Would you open up our hearts? Would you humble us? Would you help us to acknowledge to ourselves, to our community, to you, the needs that we hold and trust that you're able to fill them? We love you, Father, in your name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.